1: no one even bothers to understand what you said. Did you really make that point to begin with? That question and more this morning. I'm Josh Fate. This is the Late Kick Extra podcast. It is Wednesday, April 13th, the year of our Lord, 2022. I am somewhere between, oh, we'll call it Oklahoma City and Nashville, chasing tornadoes. I have probably been on the road by the time you listen to this for a solid 24 hours. So who knows? Uh, keep it locked on the social channels if you want updates there. At Late Kick Josh, we have got such a loaded mailbag this morning. We're going all over the place. You guys, as usual, have done a great job. Uh, there's one question that just made me angry. I just referenced it. But I'm not going to start with that. Why start on a down note when we can start on, well, kind of also a down note, but it's, at least it's a little bit different in nature. Shelton from Portland leads us off. Shelton said, do you feel like there's a certain period where college football turned down a wrong road or maybe started going in a wrong direction? Yes, Shelton, I do. I'm not one of these doom and gloom type people who just believes the sport is beyond saving or anything like that. Believe it or not, this era that a lot of people want to go back to, the 2000s, if I could take you back to the 2000s, you would be maybe shocked to know that people were arguing about all sorts of things back then, too. So it's always kind of a revisionist, rose-colored glasses sort of look at the past. Uh, but I would go back and I'd i would I'd love to find myself again in that early to mid-2000s range And I would love to just talk some sense into some people who got their hands on the wheel of college football. You know, we came to a point where The 90s were so good that it springboarded the sport into the 2000s, and with it, the profile just continued to grow and grow and grow. Make no mistake, now, college football was always big in the 90s, but it became a total behemoth in the 2000s, morphing into what it is today. And a lot of people took note, and that's the catch-22. When you have a more niche-based sport, which compared to the NFL, at least, college football was and then people start to find out how great it is. They keep hearing this commotion about this college football, and you know they look down their nose at it. But folks like you and I, we love it. Well, eventually they give it a little taste. Or if they don't like it themselves, they notice how many other people are giving it a taste. And eventually they realize, wait a second, hey, a lot of people seem to like that. Well, if people like it, then you know what the follow-up is. There's money to be made off of it. And there's nothing wrong with making money. I'm all for money. I'm a big fan of money, actually. I own some of it myself. Hope to own a lot more of it someday. But there's nothing wrong with, with trying to profit off of something that's in high demand. What I do have a problem with is when you cross kind of a line in the sand and you start sacrificing the integrity of said product in the name of profit maximization this is a tale that is as old as time this did not start with college football it won't end with college football but once people who didn't have an emotional attachment to this game and, and strictly had a business lens on the sport got their hands on the wheel we started heading down a road that ultimately got us where the sport just felt so much more commercialized I know there's a give and take I know there's a certain amount of that you have to stomach I get it But we just came out of the Masters, for example, that was held at Augusta. And whether you're a golf fan or not, you have an impression of Augusta National and the Masters and the Green Jacket and Amen Corner. And you know those things because they're so pristine and they have maintained their sanctity because the folks who run the Masters have never let anyone else take the wheel. They have always called the shots. And I really wish there were some more aspects of college football Did you notice the random accent there? Random aspects. I wish there were some more aspects of college football, of our sport, that we had been able to keep sacred. Some of it's big. Like, of course, I wish we never would have gone to a college football playoff, but some of you are fans of that. Uh, I'll tell you one that stands out to me a lot. I grew up in the South, but now I've been able to go to a lot of games up North. There are places, whether it be Notre Dame or Michigan, you know, there are places where they could fill their stadium with advertising, but they don't. Now, is that what's best for business? Well, no, they're actually leaving money on the table. You don't think big brands would love to plaster their logos all over the big house? Sure they would. Michigan doesn't do it, though. Why don't they do that? Are they not sound, business-minded people? Sure they are. But they understand there's a line they would prefer not to cross. They're not exactly hurting for money. And so they have decided that the integrity of our game day experience and the ambiance of our stadium, the presentation that we want to have is worth more to us than a dollar figure that a big corporation would give us per year to put their logo in both end zones. I respect that. I love that. That is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Doesn't mean you're wrong. If you've gone the route of allowing major advertising in your stadium, It just means I've got a little more respect for the ones who have chosen to abstain from that. So this is not how decisions are made in the real world in the boardroom. I know that. I'm in them half the time. I understand what the conversations are really like. But there's this more idealistic side of me that wishes in an alternate universe there were people in the room who weren't allowed to talk unless they really could speak the language of college football fluently. If you can't name me uh, the teams in the Big Ten East, if you can't tell me what the mascot of Arizona is, I don't really want you making critical decisions about the overall feel and presentation and direction of this sport. Again, let me cap this the way I opened it. I know that's not how the real world works, but Shelton, you asked if I thought personally there was a place where we may have turned down the wrong road. Uh, Yeah, that was it. I don't know what year specifically that was, but that was it. Jeff is in Joplin, Missouri. Now, this is the one that got me a little bit. Now, I have since corresponded with Jeff privately, so we've already settled our differences, so it's going to sound like I'm going after him here. I'm not. I just got a lot of this the other day. Jeff has agreed to be the pinata. He's agreed to be the punching bag here. The question is, well, actually, it was a statement. You know, maybe both, now that I look at it. it. was in response to a segment we did the other night about Dabo Swinney and all these comments he had with Chris Lowe from ESPN.com. It was a very long-form wide-ranging interview about the transfer portal and NIL and the direction of college football, and he did it Saturday, I guess. And so it made its way around the internet. And then people, of course, took bits and pieces of it out of context and used it to further whatever their own personal belief or agenda is for or against NIL and the portal and Dabo Swinney and whatever. So I went on Late Kick Sunday night. You may have already listened to it. And I just said, number one, I appreciate his honesty, even when I don't agree with him. Number two, He's being taken badly out of context. The guy's not anti-NIL at all. He is anti-professionalization of college football, i.e. removing the academic side entirely from college football. Uh, He's also um, personally opposed to leveraging the portal very hard. That's called philosophy. You know, you can disagree with it. That's cool. But that's just called philosophy. He's done some weird philosophical things there before that have won him championships that I disagreed with. So who was wrong, you know? So anyway... I say all that to tee up Jeff here. Jeff said, so Dabo Swinney's just going to not pay kids, but not use the portal, but still be immune to losing? Yeah, okay, I don't buy it, bro. That's what Jeff said. When I led the pod a little while ago, I said, if you make a point and no one even hears what you say or bothers to listen, did the point really get made? Well, I didn't say any of this. I never suggested Dabo's not going to pay kids. That's not what NIL is, by the way. It's not supposed to be, at least. Uh, But I never suggested that. I never suggested he would be immune to losing. I never said that I think Dabo should abstain from the portal. I never said any of this. One of the core issues I have, a lot of times when people will come back to me with comments about the show is not that they're coming to me with comments. I love that. I interact with you guys all day, like dozens of interactions per day. What aggravates me is when I say something pretty clearly and then people want to argue with it. And half the time I'll just say, Hey, could you tell me what I said? They can't even accurately tell me what I said. It's a bad, bad problem in our society in general. People don't listen People do not listen. Here's a telltale sign. If someone routinely starts a sentence before you're finished with yours, they're not listening to you. There's some coaches out there who are bad at this. Go listen to a press conference and listen to the guys who start talking before the question is done being answered. Those are not good listeners. They may end up being good coaches. They're not good listeners. A lot of folks, I guarantee you, when I'm sitting there doing a segment, you hear about three-fourths of a sentence and then your mind starts wandering, and you didn't even hear what was said. A lot of this happens with Dabo Swinney, too. So to go back to this, Jeff, and again, we already cleared the air, me and him, but Jeff said, okay, so Dabo's just not going to pay kids? Well, I never said that. He's never said they're not going to embrace NIL. To be clear, that's what it is. It's supposed to be name, image, and likeness, your players partnering with other brands and entities. It's not It's not supposed to be your school facilitating that. Now, what is and isn't going on, that's another show. But no one ever said that. In fact, Dabo didn't say that. Dabo didn't say he's anti-NIL. In fact, if you go read the piece, uh, Dabo's multiple times quoted as saying he's pro-NIL, doesn't have a problem with NIL. He has a problem with the professionalization of college athletics. And what he means by that is he's got a problem with any kind of future model where the educational aspect of college sports is no longer, because then it's not college sports to him. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I agree with that. I'd say the same thing if I were him. I'm saying the same thing, and I'm not him. I'm just a dude behind a microphone. So that's part one of this that's nonsense. The second thing is, and then he's not going to use the portal, but he'll be immune to losing. I didn't say anything remotely close to that, uh, nor did Dabo Swinney. Now, what he did say is he is still very against leaning on the portal. So what do we have there? We have a philosophy there. Uh, That's going to be wide ranging. You're going to have some coaches out there who use the portal even more than they do high school recruiting. You're going to have some guys like Dabo Swinney. I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't have the article pulled up. But what he said was essentially, if I continue to go in the portal, then I'm telling our guys they're not good enough. The ones we actually went and recruited out of high school. And also he said, my transfer portal should be that locker room. We should already have replacements. We should have fill-ins for holes that we need to uh, fill because guys left for whatever reason. Maybe it's the draft or graduation or maybe they departed. That's the entire premise behind a developmental program, a developmental model. We're supposed to have the replacement there. Uh, he didn't say he'll never use the portal, but, but yes, he absolutely has said he's going to be very hesitant to do it. It's going to be a last resort. Um, I'm a, this is where he and I don't see it the same way which is okay. That's a philosophy. There's just a difference in philosophy. that make him right or wrong or him bad and me good. Um, but what I think is I think he will adjust on this, maybe not overnight, but I do think there's going to come a time in the future where you see Clemson, maybe reluctantly, but you will see Clemson in that portal a little bit more. Because what you're essentially saying right now is even though this new fancy interstate system's in place, I'm still taking highways and back roads just because that's what I grew up driving on. That's not going to work. It's not going to work because every other one of them is on the interstate. Your your opponents, they're, they're on the interstate. They're getting to the town 45 minutes before you because they took the quicker way. You may not like it. You don't have to like it. I guarantee you Dabo Swinney does stuff right now that he doesn't like administratively. Uh, but the other thing he said is he doesn't like that there is not a set parameter or a guideline for this and that. He's saying what everyone else is saying, guys, behind the scenes. They're all saying this. They're all saying it. And then a lot of people also got bent out of shape because he was talking about free market capitalism and he was talking about how you determine value. You were, well, I'll tell you right now, you determine value by how replaceable you are. That's how you determine value. And if the market says that it's really hard to go find another Dabo or another Nick Saban, you're going to get paid a lot of money. That's why those college football coaches are making more than the professors on their campuses. Doesn't mean that what they do is more important than what the professor is doing. It does mean that what they're doing is harder to replicate than what the professor does. That's the way it is. Bruce Hornsby referenced. There it is. One for the week. Um, But look, the whole point is, Jeff, you're alleging some things that I never said here. So again, we've already cleared the air there. Uh, But... This doesn't mean that Dabo is immune to consequence here. He's going to be negatively recruited against because he says things like this. I respect that he knows that and still does it anyway because he wants to give you an honest answer. The other part of this is I think he's going to adjust and evolve on this. (laughs) Some people all call all change progress. I don't call it that way. I don't know if what we're doing as a sport right now is progress across the board. So I'm not going to say he's going to progress. I will say that he may have to evolve on some of these things. So I don't think Dabo today is the same Dabo that we'll see in five years. But I'll tell you this. I'll reiterate what I said on the show the other night. I do believe him being Dabo Swinney. I do believe Dabo Swinney when he says he values the educational aspect of college football. I think he's totally genuine when he talks about how much he cares for the players. And I also think he's totally genuine in his motivation. His motivation is he wants what's best for college football. That's why I'll always give him the time of day. Some guys are total BS artists on that. I don't think he's one of them. But like I said on the show the other night, if college football were to continue to go down a road that makes what we know the sport to be as less and less recognizable, I fully believe Dabo the kind of guy who would retire abruptly it would not totally and utterly stun me if the portal continues to be out of control and nil just devolves further and further into the chaos that it was over this past cycle if you turned on the tv one morning and there's bottom line espn breaking news Davos when announces retirement from clemson and he just goes into another sector he goes into media does whatever Uh, He's the kind of guy I think would do that Because Dabo's the kind of guy Who I also believe when he says I don't really do this for the money And he's already financially set anyway Uh, Dabo's not the kind of guy who's going to hang on Just for the sake of hanging on I'm telling you he's not Now that may affect you or you may not care about that whatsoever But just keep that in the back of your mind And I don't think he's the only one is what I'm trying to tell you. That's the point I'm trying to hammer home. I don't think Dabo's the only high-profile coach out there who looks at the current scope of college football and thinks to themselves, if this thing continues in this direction, I'm going to give it some time, but if it continues in this direction for another three or four years, I may be out of here. This is not going to be for me that's not a good thing, boys and girls. That's not a good thing at all. Even if you don't like that particular coach, that in principle is not a good thing. Preston in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina is up next. Important question here. Boy, we're going to have some difference of opinions. Preston wants to know, what is the perfect setting in your mind for a college football game, i.e. kickoff time, weather conditions, etc. I've changed so, so much on this. I used to want cold weather, and I used to prefer no kickoff before seven o'clock. Of course, when I grew up, I'm paying to go to games. I want that primetime experience. You know, there was a time where the primetime game still meant something. It was very rare. It was a a precious commodity. There were only one or two primetime windows. I still remember, I think it was the mid-2000s, I want to say, when ABC started their Saturday night game of the week. That was a huge news story. ABC is going to have a primetime college football game. At that point, we were still in an era where ESPN I think had like the 7:45 game, but most of the big games were 3:30. And they moved the ABC primetime game and ESPN, of course, when you had the advent of the SEC network and then the SEC ESPN deal, a lot more of those games got pushed to 6, 7, 8 p.m. kickoffs. So nowadays, everyone plays night games. Well, with that change, I saw less and less incentive to root for the night game. And also, now that I do this professionally, as I've told you many times during the season, I love the noon kickoff. Everyone hates it. I love the noon kickoff. The Fox big noon kickoff. Love it. Love it. Love it. In fact, I would tell you, where was I? It was Baylor, Oklahoma this past year. That would have been a noon Eastern time, 11 a.m. local time kickoff. Again, everyone's complaining. I'm just loving it. As has been well documented here, they had the breakfast buffet in the press box, limitless hash browns, and I took full advantage. But what we had that day was clear blue skies. We had lower humidity, but it wasn't cold yet. And so it was probably mid-60s, maybe mid to upper 60s, sunshine, low humidity. And even though the game kicks off at 11 a.m., you've got the lower sun angle. So it's not just blaring down on you all day. Uh, There is some shade if you want to go stand in shade, especially second half. I thought that was the most pristine set of weather conditions combined with kickoff time that I experienced all year. Now, juxtapose that with just a few weeks later and we're up in Ann Arbor and we got what maybe a lot of you would prefer. We got snow, still a noon kickoff, but we got snow and we got frigid cold temperatures and I'm wearing who knows how many layers. I had layers that I had never even worn before that I took to that game. So clearly this is a to each his and her own kind of situation because I've evolved my thinking on this. I mean, I'm totally different. I I think that 20-year-old JP would be totally and thoroughly disappointed with modern-day JP, because 20-year-old JP rooted for cold weather, suck it up was the attitude, and he rooted for night games, and now I'm sitting here saying, give me mid-60s and give me noon kickoffs, and um, I guess some porridge after I put my dentures in, because it makes me sound 80 years old, and I'm not, not even half that, but I do enjoy some of the finer things that our more seasoned listeners have come to love, and one of them is an earlier kickoff, and the second is... Don't make it quite so freezing outside. Get a little nice early October base tan, if you will. And hey, maybe some uh, limitless hash browns before the game. That doesn't hurt either. So there you have it. Tranquil, nice, balmy weather conditions, early kickoff time. Uh, Brent is up next. Uh, This is an important question because of where Brent's from. Brent is from Silver Spring, Maryland silver springs uh, with an s on the end is one of the most underrated songs of all time that was a song that was recorded by fleetwood mac but left off the rumors album inexplicably and think about what i just said rumors Still considered by many to be the best album of all time, including yours truly, even though it was recorded well before I was born. But they left one of my favorite songs off of it, and they chose some songs that shouldn't have been on there. So, anyway, Silver Spring, Maryland, checking in for the first time to my knowledge, and Brent is the representative. And he said, How many years should a coach be given before he's on the hot seat? Well, I'm a big believer that outside of scandal or hardcore extenuating circumstances, you got to give him a minimum of three. I mean, a minimum of three. I think Mike Norvell is a really good example of this right now. Mike Norvell's entering his third year. The first year he got there, he was in the worst of the worst situation because he's a new coach and then COVID happened, so they didn't get spring. And they're still talking about that down there. And I don't think it's an excuse. I mean, I think it's valid. It's legitimate. But he had that year, then they had last year, and he's going into year three. And I talked a lot about this on the show the other night, and I kind of talked to someone about this over the weekend trying to get a gauge on Florida state and here's the reality they're improving every aspect of the program is improving it's just that no one has taken the volume knob and turned it up to 11 like you picture in your wildest dreams. You know, you want an immediate turnaround. You want what Nick Saban did at Bama. Seven wins the first year, boom, they're playing for the SEC title, undefeated regular season the next year. You want what Kirby Smart did. Well, the fact of the matter is there aren't many of those folks out there, and those situations were a lot more ready-made for success. And Nick Saban could walk in anywhere and turn it around. But short of finding another Saban, you got to accept that sometimes 1 and maybe even 2 years is just not quite enough especially if you inherited a very depleted roster situation. You know, even in a perfect world, if you're just an a, a, an entire staff of assassin recruiters, it it takes a little while. And even if you've got the portal to use now, it takes a little while. Well, most coaching staffs are are good to very good maybe recruiters. And so it just it doesn't happen overnight. So anyway, Mike Norvell This year, it's an interesting situation because if you ask Florida State fans, they just want to find a way to win eight games. And yet you're listening and watching, if you watch the spring game this past weekend, and you're listening to spring practice reports, and uh, it's not that they have a terrible quarterback situation, but they don't have a great one. It's not that they have terrible position groupings, but there are very few elite or very few even really, really good ones. They do have depth issues. They are going to have to go hit the portal. Uh, But the point is, What do you do there? I said this on the show the other night. What do you do if Florida State wins seven games? They're improving, though. What if you look at them and you say, well, we can't deny they've made marginal improvement across the board. Well, what do you do? Because I can tell you confidently, there are people who would want to pull the plug after year three on Mike Norvell if he wins seven games this year. But yet there's a distinct possibility seven games would equal improvement. If you see improvement happening, even if it's not linear, and even if it's not happening quite as fast as you'd want it to, it is very foolish to hit the dump button on that. Because folks who consistently improve year over year are few and far between. Don't care how much you pay them and don't care where they've been before. Every program has its own unique set of circumstances. So I vote three years minimum, unless you have, again, like indiscretion off the field or scandal or something like that. Three years, and doubly especially, if you see improvement, then you better not. You you better be really, really ultra sure you've got an ironclad replacement before you go hitting the dump button. So FSU is a program I bring up because I think this is going to be real this year. I think they're going to float somewhere. In uh, I mean, it's a six to eight win range. I know that's a large range when we're talking about a 12 game schedule. But depending on where they fall in there, will depend on where 25 percent of the Florida State fan base's opinion goes six wins get them out of here seven wins eh, it'll be on the fence eight wins they're good and that could be a bounce of the ball could be like Nebraska this last year (laughs) which is just I was looking at their schedule the other day it's totally insane to look at I know we all watched it last year but if you've forgotten they lost nine games all by single digits eight of the nine were by one possession Just the way this sport works boggles the mind sometimes. But anyway, Brent in beautiful Silver Spring, Maryland, even this time of year. uh, Three wins, please. Three wins minimum. Melanie is up next. Which quarterback battle are you watching the closest? Now, Melanie, I'm going to assume some things here about you. You're checking in from Houston. Houston. Maybe the Port of Houston. Hope you guys saw that video from a listener in the Port of Houston the other night. Melanie, you're in Houston. You're very close to College Station. You either love Texas A&M or you hate Texas A&M. But either way, you got an opinion about Texas A&M. Therefore, you are invested in the program emotionally. I'm going to say Texas A&M. Jimbo Fisher, they just had the spring game this past Saturday. Jimbo Fisher afterwards said something very important. Jimbo was asked about why they threw the ball deep so much. And the question was really because it was so windy. It was like a tropical depression wind factor there. But he said, well, we were going to do that regardless because we know we have to. And, yeah, if today was a game day, we may not have thrown it with the wind like it is, but it's spring ball. So he said, we've got to throw it downfield. We've got to be more adamant about pushing the ball downfield. You may be listening if you're a casual college football fan and say to yourself, okay, big deal, everyone knows that. Well, they don't, or they don't put it in practice. And Jumbo Fisher and Texas A&M, at this point, famously, think one of the most famous stats in the sport right now is they were 92nd in the country out of about 130 teams in past plays of 20 yards or more last year. That's not a big deal if you're trying to get bowl eligible, but this is a team that claims to be wanting to compete for the SEC West. Well, that's not going to fly, pun intended. It's not going to fly and they know they got to get better. Now, what he said was, we are committed to it. We've been doing it all spring. We know we've got to do it. We did it today. We are going to continue to work on it. And presumably, because the follow-up was asked, should we assume that means you're going to do it in the fall? He said, yeah. I mean, he was totally adamant. He didn't beat around the bush. So we know we got to do that. Well, that goes back to the quarterback question that Melanie asked. Max Johnson, look pretty good, surprisingly mobile, look pretty good. That's the LSU transfer, of course. And then you've got Haynes King, who looks fully healthy, and he's back, and he's also mobile, but you knew that about him. They've got a really, really good quarterback battle that's going on down there. And I really need to emphasize this, a real quarterback battle. We have entered an era now, the transfer portal era, where everybody's going to claim to have a quarterback battle in the spring, we were talking about this in a meeting this morning at 24-7, like how many coaches behind the scenes would just readily tell you, yeah, we pretty much know who's going to start here, but we can't be saying that publicly because we don't want the other two guys transferring. Well, at Texas A&M, they have a legitimate quarterback battle, and I think they got two guys they can win with. Other places, they're trying to choose from a bunch of guys, and they don't know if they could win with any of them, but Texas a and I think, has at least two guys they can win with, and Connor Wegman, I think would also be in the mix at most places. That's the five-star true freshman. It just so happens they have good enough quarterback depth there right now. So I don't think he'll be in the mix this year. I'm not totally just putting him on the shelf and putting the red shirt on him, but I don't think he'll be in the mix. But those other two, I'm very much paying attention to that because as much as everyone is still trying to say, well, 2023 is the year where they could really hit it out of the park – I don't think the training wheels are on the expectation bike for Texas A&M anymore. I just don't. Like, you you never look at Bama anymore, or Ohio State, or Georgia, or Clemson. You don't look at them anymore and give them time for a down year. No one does that. That's just life. When you recruit like they do, when when you invest like they do, you spend like they do, you don't get to have a down year expectation-wise. And Texas A&M, I think some folks are still struggling with their mentality shift of applying those Tier 1 expectations annually to Texas A&M. Maybe they'll give them one more year. But I'm telling you, as the season draws closer, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of 8-win, 9-win talk, even though that's probably where the Vegas over-under will be, is around 9. I think that expectation level is going to get kicked up into that double-digit win range, and I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility for them this year. Melanie, if... Big if here, if they get that quarterback situation figured out. Figuring things out, I mean, it's the name of the game. It's so hard in some cases. It's so easy in the other case. Like, for instance, listening to this right now.
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive.
1: not even going to make fun of you. You did not see that coming, uh, but you sat through it anyway, and I appreciate it. Michael in Demopolis, Alabama. I think that's where the University of West Alabama is. Maybe that's Livingston. Anyway, uh, Michael says, I'm trying to understand college football betting more before this season. In the NFL, it seems like everyone gets three points for home field advantage. Do you think that's the same in college? No, Michael, I do not. This is a really good question. Uh, This may not be understood. And so you need to understand it. Now, when you think home field advantage, sometimes you think about how loud a stadium gets. That's not the end all be all in home field advantage. Some places are historically, mathematically, proven to be just harder to win at than other places. And I think it would surprise you that Boise State is one of the highest numerical home field advantages historically that Vegas gives out. Uh, They've been known in certain years to give out five or six points of home field advantage for Boise State. Now, I have my own theory on that. I think it's because they are allowed to wear those blue uniforms on a solid blue field, which if I'm college football commissioner, I would outlaw tomorrow. But hey, whatever. Do what you do. If they'll let you get away with it, then do it. But Boise State's always had, for instance, Boise State has had a more solid home field advantage than Georgia. Now, does that make sense to you? No, it doesn't. I think Georgia's uh, home field has ramped up over the past year or two. I I would apply probably half a point to three-quarter a point more for Georgia. I just think their fans are doing a better job of making that a very, very raucous game day environment there, more so than it used to be. So, Michael, it's a floating scale. There is not a set scale. This is always moving. But no, it's not a set three-point thing like the NFL. Because think about what you have. You have so much more fluctuation in roster maturity that a team may have when they're going on the road. Uh, You have so much more fluctuation in stadium sizes week to week, the distance you have to travel. For instance, in, in conferences at the G5 level, sometimes, in fact, a lot of times, you're not chartering. Uh, you're having to rely on actually traveling commercial sometimes, and that means connecting flights. And I don't know if you've checked the latest outposts in conferences that especially reside out west. Those aren't always the easiest places to get to. And so for all those reasons, that all gets baked into home field advantage. But it's a very, very important part of odds making and handicapping. And no, Michael, Uh, It is not just three points across the board. It's a very good question there. Very good question. And good questions all over the place. I think we really solved a lot of the college football world's problems again today. Uh, Hey, I told you the other night. I'll reiterate it here. I'm on Cameo now. And one of the first bookings I took was someone who will remain nameless, whose wife was an NFL fan. And he was trying to convince her the college game is for her as well. And he had me explain to her why the postseason in the sports has to be different and why both of them can make sense. But then the coup de gras, I had one of you, in fact, two of you now have booked me to try and convince your fiance that a spring wedding is better than a fall wedding. I think I did some of the best work I have done since I have been here in those cameo records. So the link, if you want to book one, is in my Twitter profile. I'm not going to overly plug this in your face over and over again, but uh, I, I, did, I was on the fence about this, and it ended up being like the highlight of my day. So at Lake Josh on Twitter. Follow if you haven't already. And- can see the link there. Uh, for our entire production team here, I'm Josh Pate. Thanks so much for checking out the pod. Make sure you are subscribed and leaving five-star reviews. If you haven't already, I'll see you back in studio Thursday night. Until then, take care, have a great day, and God bless.